the fish stinks from the head down. Um, Apparently that's a Greek proverb. Uh, And it's such a good metaphor for leadership, isn't it? I think the point of it is that when you see a floundering country or a floundering company or family or even church, the odds are it will start with the leadership. What does a struggling football team do eventually as they lose patience? They sack the manager, don't they? They don't sack the players on the whole. Uh, And when a company doubles its profits, who gets the biggest bonus? The chief executive, isn't it? Not the person stacking the shelves. And both of those things may seem a little bit unfair, at least to some extent. But they happen because I guess somehow people recognize that organizations of whatever size and sort they might be, they begin to reflect the people who lead them. That's why the Lord gets so angry with bad leaders among his people. When we read the the books of kings in the Bible, the histories of Israel and Judah in the time of the monarchy, you know, one and two kings, one and two chronicles, the nations rise and fall with their leaders, don't they? Evil kings very quickly produce an evil country. King Ahab is perhaps the most famous example who had all those encounters with Elijah when in his reign at one point there were only 7,000 believers left in Israel. On the other hand, you've got King Josiah, good King Josiah, who under whose reign there was spiritual renewal among the people of Judah. God takes leadership seriously because leaders have a significant impact. Now, as you know, if you've been coming for that, for uh, the various weeks of this term, we're thinking about God this term, which seems quite an obvious thing for a church to be doing in its services. And in one sense, of course, I hope we always do that. But we're taking time specifically to think about who God is. We're doing some theology, if you like. Um, and that is important for Christians to do. One, because we can't think about anything else clearly without a clear picture of God. We can't understand ourselves or the world or history unless we know God. Secondly, because I think it's so easy even for Christians to assume we know what God is like, but to assume things which are more kind of based on what our culture says God must be like, or that we've kind of inherited from from different bits of history and philosophy. And so we need to come back to the Bible and say, well, who is this God? Who is he? this God who we worship. So that's what we're doing. We thought about the God who is the Lord, I am who I am, the God who provides, the God who is healer, the Lord my shepherd, and today, the Lord my righteousness. And if you were here two weeks ago, our reading from Jeremiah takes us back to where we were last time, doesn't it? More shepherds. As I said before, the Bible has shepherds and sheep coming out of its ears. The Lord is angry with bad shepherds, which, as we've seen, is a bit of a repeated theme in the Old Testament. Some of these shepherds may have been kings of Israel and Judah. Some of them may have been prophets who were speaking to those nations. And the Lord is angry because as as leaders and those with influence, they were unfaithful in their task, and that was impacting the whole nation. Um, They're called shepherds. We discovered this a couple of weeks ago because their responsibility is to guide God's people. The shepherd's crook, isn't it? To provide for the sheep, to protect the sheep. But instead, at the time of Jeremiah, the sheep were being scattered and the nation destroyed. This is written about the time of exile 
into Babylon. So there's a clear warning here uh, of how much God cares about leadership and how much he expects those given leadership responsibility in the church to guide the people, to protect and provide for the people. The Lord says, woe to these shepherds, verse 1. And then he says he will do two things. First, verse 2, he will punish the evil shepherds. And secondly, verse 3, he will gather the remnant of his flock, his people. He'll bring them back and place good shepherds to protect them and take away their fear. Now, we're not going to go any further into the shepherd metaphor this evening because we did that two weeks ago and we saw a little bit of what it means for Jesus to be that good shepherd of Psalm 23 and John 10 and other places. But this woe to you shepherds, this rejection of leadership which leads the people astray, is also the context for this other element of who God is, which is revealed in these beautiful words of verses 5 and 6. And they're key verses for Jeremiah's message. This is not the only place he says them. You can find verses 5 and 6 almost word for word, 10 chapters later again. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous saviour. All right, little sidebar just for a moment. I don't know about you, but right now, Almost every time I open my Bible and read about Israel and Judah, it is hard, is it not, not to, not to think about what is going on. I don't know how many thousand miles away it is in the Middle East. Is that not the case? It's not just reading about it in the Bible. It's listening to fireworks. I don't know, again, about you, and just thinking of pictures of bombs um, flying across those places. Uh, we need to name that. I want to say... A bit later on in our service, we're going to pray for that particular part of God's world because it's important that we do so. At the same time, when we read these verses here, they're not about modern Israel. They're about what was happening two and a half thousand years ago and the way in which God's promises to his people are fulfilled. And we should not be simply trying to map onto a nation state in the 21st century. That would, that would be a mistake. At the same time, and we need to note the Lord's love and care for his people who he has called. And when, when our hearts break a little bit for what happens in his world, uh, remember that that's nothing compared to what this does to the God who made and called that people. So I'm putting that as a, as a sidebar here. It's not what we're thinking about as we think about the character of God first and foremost tonight. It's right that it's in our minds, and we will come back to pray about those things in a, in a few minutes. But just to take us back these two and a half thousand years or so to the time of Jeremiah, what is God going to do in response to the reality of these disastrous shepherds and the disastrous situation they've created, um, which has led God's people astray and even into captivity? Well, he promises, doesn't he, here, that he's going to raise up for them a righteous king. That's what a righteous branch for David, King David, who had died many years before, is all about. A righteous king who will do what is just and right in the land. That might be a good place to start our prayers, by the way. That's a good thing. 
But there's more, because this king, if we look closely, is given a bit of a surprising name. Um, from the first few verses of the chapter, given that it starts off with kind of the unfaithful, unrighteous shepherds of Israel, we might expect the king's name to be something like, the Lord is righteous, the opposite of the bad shepherds who are not. But the name the king is given actually goes further than that. He is called at the end of verse 6, the Lord our righteous saviour. Or in some versions, the Lord our righteousness. It's a minor difference, but I think it's quite important. It's not just that the king is going to be righteous. He is, of course. But it's more than that. It's that he will be righteous for his people, on behalf of his people. He is going to be their righteousness. This king is our righteousness. It's the idea of representation. And a representative, of course, is simply someone who acts on behalf of a group of people. We are used to that idea in all kinds of normal bits of life, aren't we? You know, we're used to it in sport. When Harry Kane scores for England, I realise that we may not all be English here this evening, but when Harry Kane scores for, Eng for England... We can say, we've scored, can't we? Now, the match may be taking place in Paris or Madrid. Uh, we may be nowhere near the stadium, let alone the penalty area. But we have scored. Now, you didn't touch the ball. Neither did I. But that's how it works. He scores on our behalf. That's why if a Leicester fan this weekend, I wasn't expecting this to go this way, you know, but if a Leicester fan this weekend meets a Leeds fan, you know, the Leeds, are there any Leeds fans here? I don't think so, but... The Leeds fan could say, we beat you, can't they? To which, of course, the Leicester fan can reply, we're top of the league. That's representation, isn't it? The players are representing everyone who is part of that club, the whole team. And on a more serious note, it's kind of how diplomats work. The British ambassador to Moscow or to Washington or wherever can speak to the government of Russia or the USA on behalf of Britain, on behalf of the British government. He or she represents them. What the ambassador says, Britain says, in effect. And then, of course, we're also used to this because there are, there are several different examples in the Bible. Here's one. Uh, you all know the story of David and Goliath from 1 Samuel chapter 17, don't you? And David fights Goliath as Israel's representative, if you remember. So Goliath stands there and shouts, choose a man and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I am able to fight and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. And so when David does his thing with the sling and the little stones and Goliath falls down stone dead, he's not just defeating a man, he's defeating the whole nation of the Philistines, isn't he, on behalf of his own people. None of the rest of them did anything at all. But they get all the rights and privileges of the victory that David achieved. He represents them. There is something of this going on in what the Lord says through Jeremiah, that one day Israel will not just have a king who is righteous, but they will have a king who is righteous on behalf of his people, the Lord our righteous saviour. The promise of a day when the generations of bad leaders who have led the Lord's people astray and failed to guide them will be replaced by a king whose righteousness will freely belong to all his people. And of course, the king who Jeremiah is looking forward to is the same king we gather week by week to look back on what he did and worship. It's King Jesus. When Harry Kane scores, 
we score. Because Jesus is righteous, we who believe in him are righteous in God's sight. And if you flick forward to 1 Corinthians, to the second reading that we had there from chapter 1, the end of chapter 1, and I want to zoom in just on the second last verse of that passage on page 1145, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. Paul, writing this letter to the church in Corinth, says, it is because of him, that's God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Paul is speaking of Jesus somehow representing his people before God, before God's throne. Jesus stands there for us, and we are present in him somehow. Christ, our righteousness, as Paul describes him there. David was the champion of Israel defeating Goliath. Jesus is our champion, winning victory over death and sin and hell. What difference does this make? Well, in all kinds of ways, this makes a difference to us. Uh, We know this, but it is good to be reminded of it. Uh, It means, first of all, as I was saying, that as we stand before the judgment of God, as we all must, as Hebrews 9 tells us, our representative stands there in our place, and his victory is our victory. Um, As he's rightly justified and declared righteous because of who he is and what he's done, We are declared righteous in him with all the rights and privileges that are due to him. That's the gospel. That's why it matters that God is our righteousness. Where does this leave us? Well, I want to say both, I think, humbled, but also reassured. That would not be a bad way for us to start this new week. Now, as we read of this king, who is the Lord, our righteous saviour, in Jeremiah, as we're reminded that we are in Christ Jesus, who is our righteousness in 1 Corinthians. It is a reminder that we have no righteousness of our own to offer, that we come before God empty-handed. And whatever we do, whatever we try, we cannot be moral enough or religious enough to claim innocence or salvation for ourselves. But we have a saviour in whom we have all of these things given to us for free. And that humility, our own humility, that's ours whether we like it or not, before Jesus' victory also means that we have complete assurance, both now and for the eternal future. If being included in the kingdom of God, as Jesus often puts it, having the hope of heaven or eternal life, there are many ways the Bible describes this, Uh, the great joys of the age to come. If this depends on on our performance, moral, religious, goodness, whatever it might be, then I'm stuffed, and you are too. But if we have a God who is the Lord, our righteousness, if that's Jesus' identity, then it's not arrogant to say with certainty that our eternal future is secure. It's entirely due to his goodness and his holiness is saving righteousness. So number one, do you know that assurance for yourself? It always strikes me how often I meet Christians who who have gone wobbly on assurance, who who maybe are beginning to think, well, there's one of two things, really. One is they're feeling worried that it's arrogant to say we have the assurance of heaven. Well, it would be 
if what we were saying was, look at me, I'll be fine when I stand before God. But if we're not saying that, if we're saying, look at Jesus, I will be fine. That's not arrogance. That's assurance. Um, the other one is that I, I sometimes meet people and they've been coming to church for years and somehow this vital bit of, of the gospel, the penny hasn't quite dropped. That it really is not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has done. And if that's the case, then it isn't in doubt. We're not waiting to find out if we've got you know, a bit more on the, on the positive ledger than the negative one. And every time we slip. Have you slipped this week? I have. We wonder, don't we? Oh, no, is that going to tip the balance the wrong way? That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus has done it. The scales are weighed down on his side, and we stand with him. So please leave church with assurance this evening. And if you are sitting there thinking, I'm, I'm really not sure about that, um, I want to pray about that. Please talk to me after the service, and let's pray about that together. Secondly, though, if this is true, if God is our righteousness, then that's a message worth passing on, isn't it? Uh, this is why Christianity is a religion of evangelism. This news is too good not to share. Uh, most of us are scared by it. I certainly am. Um, I mess it up all the time, both in not taking opportunities or, or managing to butcher them. And by God's grace, nevertheless, he still passes the gospel on, doesn't he? Just as he did through faltering people to me and to you. I guess we might say, uh, I'm not sending you out here with a, with a task, but I want to say, who are you praying for at the moment? Who are you praying for? Uh, that they might know that assurance that Jesus is our righteousness. Um, and thirdly, this is why we need leaders in our churches who reflect Jesus' character and his priorities. Shepherds who will proclaim the hope that we have in the righteousness of Jesus. Um, quite a few of us here this evening are leaders in the church in different ways. I definitely need your prayers um, in my role that I hold here. Please pray for our bishops, Martin and Saji, as they lead this diocese, that they would do that too. Um, there is a, there's a confused, supposedly inclusive gospel, gospel in speech marks, which has become common in parts of the church today. It's confused and confusing because at best it only acknowledges part of the truth. Okay, the confused message says, Jesus is my friend. Nice. But the gospel says, Jesus is the friend of sinners like me. There is more to it. The confused message says, God welcomes you. Of course he does. The gospel says more. God is the shepherd who seeks out and saves the lost. The confused message says, come as you are and stay as you are, you're fine. But the gospel says, you have been brought from darkness into light. There is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. The confused message says, you are holy and righteous as you are. The gospel says, you are made righteous by God, our righteousness, Jesus Christ. That is good news. And we need to pray these things for ourselves and for others.